in verse 5, he says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Again, to be reminded of the context here. You have Christians that are being pressed on every side. Their family members are disowning them. Businesses, jobs, disowning them, cutting them off. Uh, they're networking their group circles, their religion, the religiosity of Judaism. They're being cut off there. Then you have Nero, the Roman government, cutting them off, killing them. And in the midst of all this, imagine being told... Make sure you're submitting to one another, right? Peter, don't you realize what we're going through? My friends, my family members are being put to death, and this is what you want to tell me about, that I need to be submissive to someone else? But again, it was very important. It's in the Bible. And all throughout Scripture, there's the idea of being submitted one to another. And whoever the verse is written towards, whoever that person is, they don't like that Scripture, right? So for here, verse 5, right, perhaps all the people who consider themselves to be young, they don't really dig verse 5, right? Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. You go to scholars, commentaries, they go back and forth, whether it's literally young people to be submitted to everyone older than them, or if he's speaking to young deacons to be submitted to the older deacons. But in a moment, we're going to see that it says everyone be submitted to everybody else, right? So again, for us, I truly believe this is especially for the young people to be submitted to their elders. And in the world that we live in, the nation we live in, the culture that we live in, there's this deep-rooted praise for what's young and what's new, and this deep-rooted like hatred and disgust for whoever's older, right? It's just a thing that's gone on generation after generation, decade after decade, right? Today, there's a whole joke about boomers, right? And uh, different things like that. You have organizations wanting to destroy the, let's see if I get this right, right? The patriarchal family, right? And having a dad as the elder of the family, how that's now seen as something that's evil and disgusting. And this is straight from the pit of hell. Because God is telling us that we should be submitted to our elders and then you have groups saying, hey, no, don't be submitted to your elders. In fact, we need to destroy that and whatever we've gained from the past. Again, we need to be biblical. So anyone who's here and is younger, we should be submitted to the elders. Again, as we look at later, the whole idea is that our life should be submitted to God and resisting the devil. So even as we're, we're going to look at all a bunch of verses about submission, right? Is being submitted to that person leading you to be submitted under God and resisting the devil? If so, do it. But if that person is causing you to resist the Lord and submit to the devil, then you shouldn't be submitted under that person. We look at the first group, right? It's in the Ten Commandments. It's in Ephesians. It's in Colossians. Children. And kids, they don't like these verses, right? Because I remember I didn't like these verses very much, right? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Colossians chapter 3, verse 20. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. 
Again, the Lord starts it off with children and how children need to be submitted, need to be obedient to their parents. It's just period, end of sentence. So again, we as parents, we should demand that from our children. Because we're going to look at later on, all of this leads to us having to be submitted and obedient to the Lord. And now if we're not making and demanding that our kids be obedient to us, why are they going to be obedient to any other authority? Why are they going to be obedient to the Lord? It all starts off in the home. So, right, those are the verses the kids don't like very much. So I already got all the kids angry. Next, it's for the wives, right? We're going to get all the wives angry, right? Couple scriptures, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 and verse 24. I don't want to say all the rest because I don't get in big, big trouble, right? Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 24. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be subject to their own husbands in everything. So again, for the children first, kids, they got to be submitted to their parents. And now the wives need to be submitted to their husbands. So here you see a ladder of submission taking place. So again, we see this all throughout our families. And it starts at home. Right? If we had time to go through every single portion of scripture that is speaking to church elders, deacons, and pastors, it all starts with their homes being in order. Because if a pastor's home is not in order, how is that going to be told to the rest of the flock? Then the rest of the flock, their homes are not going to be in order. And if their homes aren't going to be in order, we're not going to be being obedient to the Lord. Or submissive to their bosses. We find this in Titus chapter 2 verse 9. And also in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 18. In the context here it's speaking to bond servants to slaves. But for us it's we as workers should be submitted to our bosses. Titus chapter 2 verse 9. Exhort bond servants to be obedient to their own masters. To be well pleasing in all things. Not answering back. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, it says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. Again, the idea of submission. It's layer after layer after layer in family, in society, and in God's word. The next group of people, I think this specifically angers guys, right? I think guys really deal with submission issues with certain groups, but it's the government. We should be submitted to the government and the ordinances of our government. In Romans chapter 13, verse 1, it tells us, Let every soul be subject to governing authorities. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, it says, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme. So again, do we see the progression here? It should start off with parents demanding of their children submission. Then it should be from there the wives being submitted unto their husbands. We know in Ephesians it also talks about the husbands being submitted under God. Looked at the workers, they need to be submitted to their bosses. Us as living in the U.S. of A., we should be submitted to our government and our governing authorities, the ordinances, right? Just have to say 55, and there's just something in each and every one of us Whatever the speed limit is, I could do five miles over, right? I'm a highly trained driver. I, I could go a little bit higher than this, a little bit faster than that. 
Why do we need all this submission within the world, within the ladder of the world? Because the whole world needs to be submitted under God. That's why. That's why we should demand it from our kids. That's why, ladies, you should be submitted to your husbands. That's why the men here, you should be submitted unto the Lord. And there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 27 and 28, it says, For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is expected. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Again, there's scriptures all over the Bible. We could spend a whole Bible study just looking at every scripture that talks about the world being subject to Christ. But again, that's why subjection needs to be within our lives. And we're going to look in a moment. If that's not there, there's probably a huge alarm that should be ringing in your mind and heart. If you're running from submission every time, if you're angry about it or bitter about it, if you're running with the groups throughout this past two years that are looking to go against authority, right, go against police, you're probably not on God's side because you're not being submitted to the authority. In fact, you're throwing bricks at them, Molotov cocktails at them, and different things like that. So again, are we on God's side or are we on the Lord's side? So he starts off saying, hey, everyone who's younger, you younger people, you should be submitted to the elders. Be submitted to your elders. But then he goes and now Peter gets everybody angry, right? Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. Each and every one of us should be willing to submit to someone else, to be submitted to the family of Christ, the body of Christ. We shouldn't be so easily offended at people within the body. When they challenge us about certain things, when they ask certain things from us. In fact, a great way to gauge how humble we really are is how submitted are we to one another. If you are unwilling to submit to any man, you, my friend, don't have much humility at all. That's what God's word shows us. The more that we're willing to submit to one another, it's going to reveal the depths of the humility within us. David Guzik, he says, it is the ability to cheerfully, that's a key word there, cheerfully put away our own agenda for God's, even if God's agenda is expressed through another person. Again, if we're honest, it's easy to submit to someone else when they're doing what we want, right? When someone's plan is to give us a thousand dollars, oh, I'll submit to you, brother, right? I'll submit to you. Hey, God's spoken to the leaders. We think that you should be the leader of this ministry. I will submit to that, my brother, right? But hey, we think the Lord, he's moving you in a different direction. No, that can't be God, right? That we would check our hearts and say, Lord, is there truly humility within me? Adam Clark, he says, strive all to serve each other. Let the pastors strive to serve the people. And the people, their pastors, let there be no contention, but who shall do the most to oblige and profit all the rest. Again, our heart, our mindset, when you enter into any church, should be, who can I serve? Who can I bless? 
Who can I bless? Who can I take care of? That should be what we are striving for. Instead, if we're honest, what we often strive for in church is how can my agenda be pushed through this church, right? How can my agenda be pushed through my parents? How can my agenda be pushed through my husband? How can my agenda be pushed through my boss? How can my agenda be pushed through my government? That's not what we should be looking for. We should be striving to keep God's agenda, and he's written out his agenda for us here, right? It's to be submitted one to another. And why should we do all this, right? He says to be submitted to one another. I love how Guzik put that, right? You have to do it in a cheerful way, right? You can't sort of cuss out the usher and then sit down where he asked you to sit down and be, yeah, I'm totally submissive, right? Wife with your husbands, you put a little extra hot sauce in his food, give him indigestion. Yeah, I'm totally, I'm totally submitted to him, right? I'm doing whatever he wants. Talk to your mom. You say a bunch of bad things about your husband. I am completely submitted to him. I just asked my mom for a couple pointers here, right? No, it has to be done with a cheerful way. And that's why he continues and be clothed with humility. For God, he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Again, he uses that word clothed, right? Articles of clothing. It's not put on little earrings, make it a nice little feature to your outfit. No, that should be the entire outfit. And we looked at this in terms of leadership, but now Peter is using the same story with Christ, his own life experience with Jesus, to talk about how we should be putting on humility. In John 13, verse 3, let's turn there real quick. We looked at this last time, but again, such an incredible display of humility. John chapter 13, verse 3, it tells us, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he pours the water into a basin and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. The word here of Christ girding himself with that towel, with that apron of a slave, is the same exact word here that Peter uses to say we need to gird ourselves with humility. Again, imagine, in verse 3, this is just mind-blowing to me, I don't know about you guys, the moment that Jesus knows that God the Father has given all things into his hand, Right? Imagine God giving you all the power in the universe. What's the first thing you're going to do? Right? What would be the first thing you do if God gave you all the power in the universe? Would the next sentence be sought to go clean the toilets at Calvary Chapel, Miami? Zach, realizing God gave him all the power, he went on and he girded himself with those purple gloves, right? Purple rubber gloves. And he took on the baton of the toilet scrubber, right? And he cleaned the toilets. That's what he's saying here, that we need to put on humility just as Christ did. Being given all things into his hand, he stoops down and he grabs a towel to begin to wash the feet of all these prideful men. See, that's the tough thing about humility. It's tough to be humble to someone else who's humble and you respect but it's especially tough to be humble and to be submitted to a complete knucklehead, right? Right, ladies, that's why you struggle, because your husbands, myself, I'm a complete knucklehead, right? And it's the same thing. Christ is not like he's washing the 12 most amazing guys ever, right? 
He's washing these guys that are constantly fighting about who's the greatest, who's the best. Guys that are having their mom go to Jesus saying, hey, Jesus, can you put them at your right hand when you get to heaven, right? And Jesus steps down to wash their feet. And then he says, for God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Again, for us to think here, Jesus is the absolute pinnacle of our faith. I think I've talked about it a lot in teachings that when you want to do something, when you dream about doing something, you don't dream about being the mediocre guy or the bad guy. You dream about being the best of the absolute best at whatever you love. And Jesus, he's the pinnacle of our faith. If we're honest, even people that are into literature, they see Jesus as the pinnacle of any hero, period. And yet, why is he the pinnacle? What led him to be the absolute top of any hero ever? It's because of the humility that he had, right? Philippians chapter 2, he is God, and yet he was willing to be formed into a human, to have to be a baby, to have to be burped, to have to be changed, to have to deal with a bunch of adults making weird faces at him, right? He went through all of that for us. The amount of humility there. Then not only that, but then he's willing to die on the cross for us. The worst possible death ever in all of humanity. And if he's the absolute pinnacle, why in the world do I think the way to reach the top is through my own pride and my own agenda? Right? How does that make any sense? Jesus, you are the absolute pinnacle. Philippians chapter 2 shows us it's because of the humility that you have. And yet I think the way I'm going to grow is by pushing my agenda through everyone and anyone. Right? It makes no sense. We need to take on humility. We need to be clothed. We need to be putting it on, knowing the only way that we will reach the top is by striving to be at the bottom. That's the only way we're going to reach the top. It's to be like Christ. Again, humility is essential in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Again, parents, that's why it's so important to teach our kids to be submitted to authority, to be submitted to their parents. Because if we're raising our kids to be prideful, you're setting them up for failure. Because pride, it goes completely against who God is, right? He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Again, it's essential in our relationship with Jesus Christ because our relationship with Jesus Christ is based on grace. It's on God's unmerited favor. That's what we're saying if we have a true and right relationship with God. We're saying, God, I've done everything to not deserve this. God, I am here because of your grace and your mercy. Your grace and your mercy alone allows me to stand right here where I am. But now if we begin to cling to pride, you have to let go of that grace and humility. Because now you're saying, God, I deserve to be here. God, I have served hard enough to be here. I've done X, Y, or Z, so now I deserve this. And now you're puffing up your pride and you have to let go of the I don't deserve this whatsoever. So again, we can either cling to grace or we can cling to our pride. And if we cling to grace, right, if we cling to our humility, God will give us even more of his grace. 
That word, God resists the proud, right? A lot of the guys here, those old, uh, not old, but those movies based on like Roman times, Grecian times. When I forget the real name of it, right? But basically when all the guys get their shields and they look like a big turtle, that's what it's saying there. That God sets himself in battle array against the prideful. Anybody want to go to war with God? Anybody want to go to war with the creator of heaven and earth? The one who ripped the Red Sea in two, right? That the man that you want to go to war with? When we fill ourselves up with pride, when we allow pride to grow in our lives, you are saying, God, let's go. Let's go. He's saying he sets himself in battle array, right? Again, those old movies where they pull out the catapults, they pull out the archers, they pull out the horsemen, they pull out the whole entire army getting ready for war. That's what it's saying God does to the proud. F.B. Meyer, he says, pride is one of the most detestable of sins. Yet, does it not find lodgment in earnest souls? Though we often speak of it by some lighter name. We often call it independence, self-reliance. In fact, we're proud of our humility, vain of our meekness, and putting on the saintliest look, we wonder whether all around are not admiring us for our lowliness. Again, false humility is full pride, right? Sometimes we come into church and then we begin to ask, why has no one realized how amazing I am yet, right? And that's pride. That's not humility. Don't they realize how humble I am? No, it's the opposite, right? We need to be so careful. Pride, it creeps in. Charles Spurgeon, he says, if you are willing to be nothing, God will make something of you. The way to the top of the ladder is to begin at the lowest round. In fact, in the church of God, the way up, is to go down. But he that is ambitious to be at the top will find himself before long at the bottom. Again, the way up, it's down within our walk with Christ. That's the way that we need to be living. Oftentimes you'll see people come to church and they want to start serving. Yeah, I'm willing to do anything. I'm willing to do anything. I'm willing to, uh, to do anything. But they're never cleaning the bathrooms, they're never helping pick up the chairs, and they're really not willing to do anything. They're only seeking to teach or be in worship or be in a ministry that in their mind is worthy of who they are. And this whole idea that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Again, Peter, think of the character of Peter, think of who he is. He dealt with this firsthand. Let's go to Matthew chapter 26, and here we see just another incident of pride and and what it does to us. Matthew chapter 26, Matthew 26 verse 31. Again, God himself through Jesus Christ, the son of God, again, God himself, he's talking with the disciples and he tells all of them. Matthew 26 verse 31 says, then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd And the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Our beloved, right? Peter, he answers and he says to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter, he says to them, Even if if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. Again, we know how the story ends. Peter, 
doing exactly what Jesus said, right? Denies him three times, and then the rooster crows. Church history says that when Peter would walk around, it reminds me of our friends in our church, right? Peter would walk around, and some of the other people go, They would be messing with him for the rest of his life. He was known as, dude, you denied him three times. You said you're all big, you're all bad. You were bigger and badder than the rest of the 12, and yet you ate dirt. So again, for us, how do we apply this to our lives? When God warns us about things, when God uses people in our lives to warn us about things, family, may we cling to humility and grace. If we cling to our pride saying, I can do this, my family can do this by ourselves, I can handle this, my marriage, I got this, I don't need help, right? Preparate, get ready, right? Peter, he went through that. Jesus is saying, hey, get ready. This is going to happen and you're all going to run. Peter doesn't stop to say, Lord, pray for me. Lord, strengthen me. Lord, how can we not do this? Lord, how can I do better? Oh, Peter says, not me, Lord. Not me. And so often, right, people come into our lives and they speak, hey, this is something I see that ah, it's just dangerous. I don't know if that's good. And so often, how do I respond? Ah, Not me, man. Not me. You got to tell the other person. That's for somebody else. Again, that we would cling to humility. Lord, I'm only here because of your grace. Lord, right, think of Moses. Lord, if you don't go with us, Lord, we're not moving from here. Lord, it's you and you alone. Lord, it's your power, it's your blood, it's your grace, and that alone. That's the safe place to be. Right? Where's the safest place for a sheep to be? Right next to the shepherd. I can't go far from you. I have to stay close to you. It's only when I'm with you that I'm safe. That, again, should be our heart. Because if not, God will resist us. He'll get the battle ready. He's ready to wage war against those who are prideful. Verse 6, therefore, right? Because God says he's going to go to war with you if you're filled with pride. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. Here, Peter answers a question, right? I often have, okay, you want me to humble myself. How do I do that practically? What does putting on humility really look like? It's twofold. Submit yourself under God, right? The whole idea of submission, once again, submit yourself to God, submit yourself to God's word, and wait on his timing. And finally, cast your care upon him. That's how we grow in humility. Submit yourself under God. We live in a scary day and age where churches are deciding what scriptures are relevant today and not today, right? Women pastor, ah, that doesn't really count, even though it's found two or three times in the New Testament. That doesn't really count, right? Marriage between one man and one woman, I know Jesus said it, but that doesn't really count, right? Right? Homosexuality, all the gender stuff, all the things going on, it's people saying, I have the authority, not God. I'm not going to submit to God's authority. That's what that truly is happening. So the way we put on humility is saying, God, I am submitted under you. What your word says, Lord, that I'm going to do. Because if we do that, then we're going to find more and more grace. But if we do the opposite, we're resisting, right? What is he going to do to us? Get in battle array. He's going to get ready to go to war with us. We need to submit ourselves under God and under his word. The next thing is to wait on his timing. That as we humble ourselves, it's not saying, Lord, is it time yet? Lord, is it time yet? Lord, is it time yet? Lord, okay, forget it, Lord. I'm going to go do my own thing. 
You got to wait on his timing. He's going to exalt us in due time. Some of us are saying, yeah, Lord, my time is due. It should have happened already, right? What's happening? No, we need to be patient and wait on him. Doing what's the next thing? Casting your care upon him. Some of our care, half of our cares, all of our cares. All of our cares, all of our anxiety, all of our fears, all of our what-ifs, that is to be cast to the feet of Christ. That is to be cast to our Heavenly Father. The word there, cast, is literally talking about like a cast net, right? A fishing net. Some guys are really good at that. They call it a pancake, right? It looks like this beautiful, perfect circle that you want to see in slow motion. Other guys, they like have it stuck in their teeth and they fall off the side of the boat. But man, you got to just cast it. Cast the anxiety far from you. Cast those fears, cast those cares away from you. Because here's a difficult truth within Scripture. Fear, anxiety, worry, it's all sin. And it's all sin derived from pride. It's saying, Lord, I really care about myself. Lord, you really don't care about me that much. Lord, I know what's best for myself. Lord, you really don't know what's best for me. It's all attached to that. Let's go to Matthew chapter 6, verse 31. Matthew chapter 6, verse 31. Uh, if, if that verse just struck a chord in your heart, hey, read that whole chapter when you get home. But verse 25 through 30, he talks about how much he cares about the birds, how much he cares and he feeds the birds, how he takes care of the flowers, and how much more he cares about us compared to any bird or any flower. There in verse 31, it says, Therefore... Because the bird is fed, the flowers are taken care of, because I care about you more than any bird or flower, therefore do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Because, verse 32, for after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Instead of worrying, instead of consuming our mind and thought with these worries, what we should be doing is, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Again, family, he cares for you. He's a perfect father that cares for you. We should be relaxed. We should be easygoing. And again, who is he speaking this to? People that are being pressed on every side. That the government is seeking to kill them and feed them to lions. That their family has disowned them. That their network of friendships and relationships has been busted. And he's telling them, hey, don't worry. Cast your worry. Cast your cares upon the Lord. Because he cares about his family. Do we trust him? Right? My kids, I told them once straight up this past week, I said, you guys are so spoiled, right? I do. I spoil my kids. We go out to eat a lot. I let them order things they probably should never be ordering, right? My kids like lobster and crab, and I have no clue why they like these things, right? And steak and stuff like that. I have no clue why they like it. It's because their dad likes it a lot. Um, but at the end of the tab, none of my kids have ever worried Dad, how are we going to pay for this bill? Are we going to have to be washing dishes? Dad, I didn't bring my piggy bank. What are we going to do here? Are we going to have to just run out of here, Dad? Are we going to have to do that now, right? Never are they worried about that. They're not worried if there's enough gas in the car, right? 
They're not worried about the bills. They're worried about nothing. They're just enjoying time with their dad, enjoying life. That's the same thing the Lord wants of us. Right? What would you think of parents that have a kid that is worried about everything? You'd say, what's wrong with these parents? This kid's worried about where they're going to eat. This kid's worried about violence. This kid's worried. What kind of home situation is this kid in that they're worried about so many things? Family, what does the world think about us and our Heavenly Father when they see us just as worried as the rest of the world? What kind of a home does Zach live in? What kind of a perfect father does he have that Zach is always worried, that he's always freaked out, that he's filling his house with spam, right? Doomsday prepping. What kind of a dad does he have? We should know that our Lord cares for us. Again, imagine if we'd be so consumed with these things that we're worried with as being in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Trusting in him. Again, we think of our great heroes of the faith, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, taken from their homes, their parents probably murdered right in front of them, country destroyed, and yet the Lord cared for them, protected them, took care of them. Again, family, cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. And now there are some worries, some cares that are legitimate, but then there's also other worries and other cares that are just flat out sinful. Charles Spurgeon, he says, all cares of covetousness, anger, pride, ambition, and willfulness must be cast into the wind. It would be criminal to dream of casting them upon God. Do not pray about them, except that God will redeem you from them. Let your desires be kept within a narrow circle, and your anxieties will be lessened at a stroke. Again, our sin, that should be cut away with. Oftentimes, we're not only holding to our worries, but then we're multiplying our problems, now leading to covetousness, anger, pride, and ambition, and things that shouldn't be there because we're holding on to our anxiety, right? Am I ever going to get married? And now you're looking at everybody else getting married, and now you're coveting. You're getting angry. You're getting bitter with these people that they're just enjoying their lives because you weren't letting go of that anxiety at the start. Now, in verse 8, he sort of changes lines here the whole idea is to be submitted under God and now the next idea right is to resist the devil verse 8 he says hey be sober be vigilant because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour that word to be sober it's to be clear-headed it's to have nothing affecting your judgment or your senses that word vigilant, it's to be watchful, to pay close attention. Right? Imagine if I told you, hey, somebody's robbing your house tonight. Ah, I'm just going to go to sleep, right? Even, even the people that would think, man, you're crazy, right? Even that person would be double-checking the doors, right? Double-checking every door. Maybe they got a couple extra weapons they put around the room, right? Just in case. Now, we as believers, we know that we have an adversary. We know we have an enemy. He's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We have a devil, right? We have a burglar. We have an enemy that's constantly walking around looking for the weakest link. And that word devour, it's to swallow whole. Again, we've talked about he doesn't just want to hurt your family a little bit. doesn't want to just hurt your marriage. No, he wants to devour it. 
He wants to gulp it down. Are we being clear-headed? Are we being watchful? Are we looking over our family? Are we looking over our marriage? Or are we like Peter saying, Lord, not me. Lord, never me. I'm okay. I'm fine, right? Not being vigilant. Not being clear-headed. Not paying careful attention. Again, family, as good and great as our Lord is and he's going to see us through, we also have a devil that hates us and wants to destroy us and devour us. Are we paying attention? Parents, are we paying attention to our kids? Are we seeing what's going on in our homes? And scripture tells us sometimes he's like a roaring lion. Sometimes he puts himself as an angel of light. Right in Proverbs, he puts himself as that woman that's lusting after you. We need to be careful because Satan, he's a skilled hunter. And like any skilled hunter, he's going to use the right bait and the right calls for each and every one of us. Again, you have a hunter that's been studying his prey for the last, what, 6,000 years, something like that, right? Since the dawn of man, he's been hunting this same exact prey. That's the guy hunting after us, right? Are we watchful? Are we paying attention? Are we saying, Lord, is there sin in my life that I'm allowing to grow that is not making me clear-headed? Lord, I'm not being vigilant. I'm not being watchful. I'm allowing certain things. I'm allowing my time to be wasted and bringing these things into my home and into my life. Lord, is this going to lead to my demise? Again, that we'd be paying attention. So the whole idea is to pay close attention because we have an adversary. His plans for us, it's not nice. He wants to gulp you down. Verse 9, what should we do? We should resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Again, all over Scripture, there's the idea of running from sin, but resisting the devil. We don't need to run from the devil. God's Word tells us over and over and over again to resist him. What we need to run from is temptation and run from sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 Flee fornication, right? Again, run from sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is without the whole body, but he that commits fornication sins against his own body. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14 tells us, My dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. So again, run from sexual immorality. Now we should run from idolatry in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11, right? Paul, he gives Timothy a list there of sins, right? The love of money, coveting, these different problems, temptations. He says, these things, verse 11, 1 Timothy chapter 6, O man of God, flee from these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. So again, the love of money, coveting, right? That's something else that we should be running from, fleeing from. And then finally in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, probably the most famous one of these, it's flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Again, we should be running from those things. Flee from those things. Flee from that. But we need to resist Satan. The idea here is to stand your ground. Lock into your faith even more. That's what we should be doing. 
It's not in a position where we're just running for our lives. Run for your life away from sin. But when the enemy comes knocking on your door, we need to stand our ground in the faith. In our belief in Christ. Not just the word faith, but the whole entirety of it all. Stand your ground in who God is and what he has for us, his plans for us. Those are the things that we need to stand our ground in. Knowing who he is. Knowing that Christ has, in a sense, defanged this great lion there at the cross. Stand your ground in these things. Charles Spurgeon, he says, resist. Be more prayerful every time he is more active. He will soon give it up. If he finds that his attacks drive you to Christ, often has Satan been nothing but a big black dog to drive Christ's sheep nearer to the master. Again, family, when he comes knocking on your door, run to Christ, right? That's what it is, really. Stand your ground in who God is. Pray more. Be in Bible study more. Come to the different Bible studies more and more. James chapter 4, verse 7, same idea there. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Again, family, sin comes knocking on your door. Never surrender. There's never an excuse. There's definitely no part in Scripture where we are to submit to sin, right? Nowhere in there. I just have to do this. I just didn't have a choice. No, you had a choice, and you chose to do that, right? We've looked at Romans plenty within this season. He's freed us from all our sins. Now, anytime we do sin, it's because our lust and our flesh, we allowed it to drive us to that. Never surrender, family. Submit to God and resist the devil. Again, the word resist the devil is the same exact word that's used as God resisting the proud. Set yourself in battle array. Do that spiritual warfare. Get in your word. Get in your Bible. And be prepared for the battle. He's going to flee. He's going to run. He's going to look for the next weak target. Verse 10. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Again, the God of all grace, right? Only a God of all grace would call us to be here, to serve here, right? Only the God of all grace would allow me to be a pastor, to be up here. It's only the God of all grace. And now he has called us. Again, think of the end game here, right? He has called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. Remember, he's returning. Remember that one day we are going to see him face to face. And Peter, he got to see Jesus in his glory at the Mount of Transfiguration, right? We looked at that last week. We're going to be there with him one day. And now the part of this verse that we don't like, right? What do you mean after you have suffered a while, right? Lord, what are you talking about here? Right? There's the truth here that there is suffering within Christianity, Right? I wonder what prosperity doctrine does with this verse, but that's another teaching, right? After you have suffered a while, the good news is that it's just for a season, right? The good news is that it's not what you're going to be suffering for all of eternity. That's what's going to happen to the unbeliever, the person that doesn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But for us, it's going to be for a while. And then allow the Lord to perfect us. That's not the word to make complete, but one day we will be perfect just as he is. He's going to establish us. He's going to strengthen us, and he's going to settle us. Again, family, are we 
doing this? Are we waiting within God? Are we remembering who he is, that he is the God of all grace? God of all grace, cling to that family. Then in verse 11, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. One last thing I forgot to mention here in verse 9 through 11 is that even when we're faced with temptation, even when we're faced with suffering, I love it how it tells us there in verse 9, you're not the only one. You're not the only one. The same sufferings are being experienced by our brotherhood in the world. You're dealing with maybe a crazy person in government. Hey, join the club. You're struggling with gossip. Hey, join the club. You're struggling with lust. Hey, join the club. We all suffer through these things. We all struggle with these things. But we ought to resist the devil, staying steadfast in the faith. Finally, verse 12, he says, By Silvanus, this is talking about Silas, right? Paul and Silas, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, this is speaking of the church that is in Rome, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Again, this is pretty cool because this is the Mark that Paul and Silas, right? Paul and Barnabas had big problems, right? He's Barnabas' nephew, and yet the kid was a flake, Halfway through the mission trip, he bailed, and he says, I can't do this anymore, right? And now the next mission trip, Barnabas goes to Paul. You know who we should bring? We should bring Mark. Paul's saying, no way, man. That kid's a flake. I'm not going anywhere in ministry with that kid, right? There's a huge friction there, a huge fight, and that's when Paul goes with Silas, and that's when Barnabas goes with Mark. But we see here, again, if anyone knew what it was like to eat dirt and then get restored into ministry, it was Peter. And now Peter says, man, Mark, my son, hey, he's greeting you. Finally, verse 14, here we see the original Christians. They were Cubans. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Ladies, don't let any guy give you this verse to try to give you a kiss of love, right? That's not what's going on here. Yeah, family, may we be ready for those trials. Be ready for those temptations. Be ready to suffer for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And may we submit to him. Submit to his word. Just trust him. See what, just see what happens, right? Give yourself six months and say, okay, Lord, I'm going to try you out. I'm going to submit to your word. I'm just going to take your word as it is, the word of God. I'm going to say this is actually you. And I'm going to give the next six months of my life to be completely submitted to your word. And see what God does in your life with that. See what he wants to do in you, in your family, in your friendships, as a worker, as a boss. Just trust the Lord. And if you're a seasoned believer here, then you already know that our life should be submitted unto the Lord. In every season, no matter what the cost, hey, be submitted unto him. Resist the devil. He's going to flee.